Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. I'm going to read the text in its entirety. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word, bear my word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. For you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall send as soon see you as if he come, if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. It's a biblical prayer. This is a benediction prayer, a prayer of blessing. And prayers in the Bible they teach us a lot about praying. You go to the Lord Jesus and you hear the Lord's Prayer and there are elements of that prayer that stick out to us. We've all heard the acronym or many of you have heard ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. And that is drawn from the Lord's Prayer. You start with adoration, you go to confession and thanksgiving and supplication. Just like the Lord's Prayer, when you get into prayers or benedictory prayers at the end of a, a book, you can learn things from those prayers. When you get into the book of Ephesians, you hear the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, and you can learn things about prayer from that apostolic prayer. And that's exactly what we're going to do here this morning. This is a prayer of blessing, and we're going to finish this book today talking about the blessings of God in Christ Jesus and God's grace to you. Grace gets the final word in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is full of grace and warning assurance of salvation and a call to action to a living faith and we end the book with the grace of God in fact the last five words of the book last six words of the book grace be with all of you grace be with all of you and that's what we're going to get this morning is just a truckload of God's grace starting verse 20 now may the God of peace the God of peace God of peace what does it mean that God is the God of peace what does it mean to have Peace with God. Billy Graham's first book was, anybody know? Peace with God. There we go. Who said that? Is that George? Let it, you get a star. Peace with God. God of peace. When you think about peace, you also have images or thoughts of judgment or wrath. God's love. The image or thought of peace brings other words to your mind. But we think about God being the God of peace. We immediately think about what, what it means to have peace with God. This is what people are in, at least they say, pursuit of. Peace with God. We want peace in life. Now, the Jew who has faith in Christ Jesus, remember this audience, the Hebrew audience here, are those who, have, who are of Jewish descent, who have confessed Christ as Lord, and they now have peace with God. Consequently, the Jew who does not have faith in Christ does not have peace with God. God is a God of peace, but if you are not in right relationship with this God of peace, you do not have peace with God. The only way to have peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something the book makes plain and clear over and over again. To the non-believer then, if you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you do not have peace with God. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Every single non-Christian, according to Ephesians chapter 2, and in accordance with John 3, 36, every single non-Christian, even though God is a God of peace, is not in proper relationship with this God of peace. And Ephesians 2 calls them objects of God's wrath. Now, God does have a general love for those objects of wrath, which are sinners. But modern people have been hammered over the head, really, with this idea of a generic love of God. And people need to be reminded again that God is a God of peace only for those who have peace with God. To bring up the movie The Gladiator again, last time we'll talk about Gladiator for a long time. There was a scene where the general's walking out, Maximus is getting ready to walk out, and it was the very first uh, time that, actually I think it might have been the very first time that they were all walking out, so he was not yet being called the general by the rest of the slaves. They were standing there, and there was one slave who was a weaker man, and he was terrified, and he was standing there, and he actually went to, he was just so terrified and shaking, he actually wet his pants. He was very, just terrified in fear of what he was about to face, and he did end up dying. He had real fear of what was coming. And what needs to be stated about this God of peace to the world right now is a a reinstatement of God's love and his wrath. But Because we think about peace and the fact that these Jewish believers had peace with God, with the God of peace, we have to keep in mind that those who didn't have faith in Christ were under God's wrath, and it is a fearful thing to be under the wrath of God. People in America have been inundated with this idea that God is loving. And God certainly has love for sinners. But what people need to be doing is doing what that gladiator did that day, which was shaking his boots in fear at judgment, the judgment that was coming. And this is a reality for everybody that does not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is you do not have peace with God. You are under God's wrath. And this is what shook in the first Great Awakening, what shook our country in the, in the Northeast, and what shook great, uh, the New England area was the fact that sinners are in the hands of an angry God. And that any moment right now, if God was to take away his common grace upon any sinner out there, they would die and face the very wrath of God. And it shook people to the core. They ran to the cross of Christ to find peace with God. And that's what we need today, to know that God is a God of peace, but for only those who have peace with him. Every non-Christian is an object of God's wrath. And only those saved by Jesus are assured of the saving love of God and peace with God. So when we hear God of peace, we have to keep in mind the privilege that it is to be at peace with God. You have peace with the God of the universe. And those who don't have wrath coming their way. And that's why it's so critical to have these conversations that Liz just talked about, these evangelistic conversations. Why it's so critical to tell our children about the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is because peace with God is found only one way. God certainly is a God of peace. He's made a way for sinners to have peace with Him. Think about how gracious that is. He didn't have to do that for anyone. He was under no obligation. He was not held down by anyone, certainly not mankind. And He freely gave away made a way, and became the way to have peace with God. God, the God of peace, did something. We're told here in the passage that he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus really died, 
He really died in the place of real sinners. This is a personal thing and it's a corporate thing. Because every single Christian has individually been saved, but every single Christian is saved as a part of the body of Christ. It's an individual, personal, deeply personal thing. As you begin to tell your testimony, tell your story about how you move from death to life, how you move from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, you think about that and whether it was a moment that you remember that you can put on a calendar and you can just pinpoint the very minute that you were saved or whether it was a season of life where you just your life was changed and you had faith in Christ and you can't pinpoint it, but you know that personal testimony of Jesus saving you. And you know that you used to be one way and he changed you and now you were a different way or you were on the path of becoming somebody else and he turned you, changed your heart and gave you a new heart, breathed life into you. Your, ter- your testimony is deeply personal and yet it's corporate because we come to the Lord's table every day, or every, single, every single Lord's day and we come to the Lord's table, it culminates at coming and feeding on the very body and the blood of Jesus and we remember together that we're not just individuals saved by the grace of God but we're a part of the body of Christ that's been saved by Jesus, And we are saved by Jesus because God the Father brought Jesus back from the dead. And he is our Lord. The text tells us that he is the Lord Jesus. You probably heard the breakdown before that you can have Jesus as Savior uh, and you may not have him as Lord. And yet we find in the text, we find in the, in the passages throughout the New Testament that you cannot have Jesus as Savior if you don't have him as Lord. Because there's no other Savior besides Lord Jesus. He's Lord of your life, or you don't have him in your life. Jesus is the Lord Jesus. He's our king. He's our master. He is who he is, and you can't have him as you want him to be. The malleable Jesus is no Jesus at all. Jesus is who he is. You have to have him as Lord, because that's by definition who he is. And this Jesus, who is the Lord, is also the great shepherd of the sheep. And this is what brings me... Just personal comfort as we've been talking about pastoral ministry and what it means to be an under-shepherd. We find out the proper order in a local church is that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus Christ is the lead pastor of the church as a whole. And he's the lead pastor of every single local church. And underneath Jesus, we have local shepherds that are under shepherds who have some sort of authority we've been looking at. But every single under shepherd has to know that they have care over these sheep, but these sheep do not belong to them. There's no elder team that owns any church or any sheep. Jesus owns his sheep. Jesus bought his sheep and he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one that's perfect, the one that's flawless. He is truly the great shepherd. Jesus is the lead pastor. And you guys have heard me say this time and time again, and I want to keep saying it because it's so critical. You do not need me or our elder team to set any kind of vision for Christ Church Carbondale. You do not need me or any elder team to set any sort of mission for this local church. That's why we don't have classic vision statements or mission statements in the sense of our personal desire to see this group of people reached or that group of people reached. We don't do that because Jesus, as the lead pastor of the church, sets the agenda for us. We don't set the agenda for you. The great shepherd of the sheep sets the agenda for the church and every single local church. That means every single local church should look the same, should be structured the same or very similar, should have the exact same mission and the exact same vision. We have this thing called the great 
Commission. You might have heard of it before. The mission is set by us, set for us, not by us. It's set for us, not by us. And when under-shepherds don't understand that, they think that they are the setters of the agenda for the church. And friends, that is solely in the hands of Jesus. Jesus sets the agenda for us, not me. Jesus sets the agenda for every single church, not the pastors of that church. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. No pastor or elder is free to set the mission and the vision. We follow Jesus, and the only way under shepherds are able to say, follow me, is follow me in so much we are doing like the Apostle Paul calls us to do, follow me as I follow Christ. If it's follow me because I've got the vision, because I've got the plan, and I'm the man, don't follow a man like that. You follow Jesus, and under that, like the Apostle Paul, elders are to say, follow us as we follow Christ. Not follow us because you depend on us. Under the lordship of Christ, then, every church should be doing the exact same things when we come together. It's often said that there's liberty among churches. And in the New Testament, you can have liberty and churches can look and do all the things that they want to do and set their own agendas. And that is not true. We are an aim here as this church to not do things new, not do things innovative, not do things that nobody else is doing. And if you want to reach people that nobody's reaching, you've got to do things nobody's doing. That's how a, that's literally how cults get started. We want to do things that the historic church have been, have been doing, and we want to do things as prescribed by the scriptures. We're not trying to be innovative here. We're coming around God's word, and we're trying to say, God, our, your, son, your, your servants are humbly listening. We want to obey you. And as we obey you, it's going to look so similar to every other church. We're not trying to invent anything or reinvent the wheel. And elders need to understand that their work is authorized by the king of the universe and we are following him and leading people to follow him under his care of his church. I don't have a church I pastor. I don't have a church that I own. Jesus owns the church. He bought the church with his very blood. We are owned, possessed, taken care of by Jesus. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. We follow him. Jesus really is our pastor. Really. And you think, well, that's kind of ethereal. How does that functionally work? And some of those things can feel and seem ethereal. But Jesus, through the local church, really is shepherding and pastoring you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you go out throughout the week, Jesus really is your pastor who's always with you. He told us, declared to us very clearly, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's never going to be a day in your life that Jesus is not your great lead pastor. And you're in the palm of his hand every moment of every day, even when you're at your worst, you are under the pastoral care of Jesus. Jesus is your pastor. And that is good news. And consequently, he's my pastor. I get a pastor. Not only do I have my elders, these under-shepherds that care for us and love us and shepherd us, But we also have the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who really is my personal pastor. And that's for you as well. He's the one we are dependent upon. He lived and died for us, and he came back from the grave. Our lead pastor, he knows when to be bold, and he knows when to be a lamb. He's never out of balance. He knows when to cry and he knows when to speak. He knows when to set his face like flint to his enemies and walk without fear to what his father has called him to. 
He doesn't back down, and yet he knows when to pick a fight and when not to pick a fight. He knows when to be silent. And he knows when to give counsel and theological truth. Jesus is the perfect lion and the perfect lamb, and he is our pastor. He really is the best pastor ever. No pastor can hold a whatever to King Jesus. Jesus is the best pastor there's ever ever been. And he really did spill his blood. And we get to the very blood of Jesus in this text, the great shepherd of the sheep. Why is he the great shepherd of the sheep? Well, one reason is because he literally spilled his blood to obtain his bride. By the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Just in this one verse, just think about verse 20. Listen to all the content, the truth that's just in verse 20. The God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Just in those, just that, that first part. You can break this down, verse 20, A, B, and C. Peace. You could write, Billy Graham writes a book about peace, peace with God. Who brought you up again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. And now in this one verse, we get to the eternal covenant, by the blood of the eternal covenant. These are verses or words that you can read by and just blow through them. Because you're reading through your Bible reading plan and you're reading the book of Hebrews and you have four chapters to read today. And so you read this and you read this verse and you read it and you think, oh, that's cool. The eternal covenant, and, and it's hard when you're reading through books uh, quickly, and we need to do that. We need to read God's word and, and always come back to God's word, but we also need times where we pause and we meditate and we consider the blood of the eternal covenant. This eternal covenant, what is this thing that we're talking about here? I love the eternal covenant. This eternal covenant is seen and demonstrated clearly in the new covenant. We find that this, this covenant is eternal. When we think about this eternal covenant, we think about eternity past and eternity future. There's still a time stamp on that, right? You say eternity past, eternity future, and eternity is a very difficult thing to think about. You think about with with eternity, somehow or another, in the eternal state, there's still going to be time, which means a sequential order of things. When you think about eternity past, there was a, a moment in time where a decision was made by God to create and to decree all things from the beginning to the end. And some moment, there was a before and after creation. Somehow, in this eternity thing, that God is, is outside of. He's in every moment. He's in 30 seconds from now. He just doesn't know 30 seconds from now. He's reigning and ruling 30 seconds from now. And he's reigning and ruling 5,000 years ago. And he's reigning and ruling right now a million years from now. This, this, this time constraint that we're a part of, God is not a part of it. And yet somehow in eternity, we find out in the book of Revelation that there's this thing called, it's, it's 30 minutes, a half hour. That somehow there's still a sequential order of things in this eternal. So when we think about eternal, we start thinking about past and future. That's where our, our mind begins to go. And, and here in Ephesians chapter 1, we find out that this blood of the eternal covenant, as far back that we have written before the foundation of the world, and as far forward as we have in the book of Revelation, we see these bookends of the Bible, of, of, of history, eternity past, eternity future, and what do we find there? We find this eternal covenant. We find the work of Christ in eternity past and in eternity future. Ephesians chapter 1, four, verse 4 says this, that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God the Father chose his bride and put the bride, gave the bride to Jesus, gave actual people to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before we did anything good or bad, God decided 
to give his son a gift, God the Father. So in eternity past, what before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ, this eternal covenant. Now, fast forward, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, no longer, this is speaking of the eternal state, no longer will there be anything accursed. Praise God, right? Nothing out there, nothing accursed, nothing But the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it. The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? That's Jesus. Where do you get the title Lamb? Well, that's the the sacrificial Lamb. We, We will celebrate the work of Christ. We see it in eternity past, chosen in Christ, the Lamb, and eternity future, where the Lamb will be on the throne. And what will His servants be doing? And His servants will worship Him. This eternal covenant is seen from the beginning to the end. And it will never be forgotten. We sing songs here that we can sing for eternity. We're going to sing, we're going to celebrate the Lamb of God who is slain for sinners. That won't be something that's a past event that we we don't think about anymore. It's going to be front and center forever and ever and ever. And it will never, ever be boring to us. Even to this day, who people have discovered the glory of the cross of Christ. You, you get into the gospel and you read about the atonement. You read about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You read the doctrines of grace and you're just overwhelmed by God's grace. You have this grace awakening. This is what Dan Malure talks about. That was that Chuck Swindoll wrote grace awakening. And you become a great, God's grace is great, isn't it? I deserve nothing from God and yet God has freely saved me, given me his grace. This is a glorious thing. And yet times in this life ashamedly we grow dull of hearing of the cross of Christ it's old hat we've heard it so often we've we know the doctrines of grace we love God's grace and it's in one ear and out the other and yet the final scene, the eternal state, something is going to happen in us that we will be so sanctified by the Spirit of God that forever and ever and ever, the meat that we will eat, the stuff that we will chew on, the glory that's set before us is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who is on the throne and His servants will worship Him. And we won't ever hear of the Lamb of God or see the Lamb of God or worship the Lamb of God and and it go in one ear and out the other. There's glories there. The eternal covenant. We can drill down deeper and talk about this from John 17 and hear about God the Father giving to God the Son. I have not lost any of that which you gave me. This eternal covenant is seen, promised, now established, and it will never lose its power. This eternal covenant really is eternal. And those who are a part of it can't be pulled out of it. You and I, are with the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ because we have been chosen in Him and God will not remove us out of that. Friends, this eternal covenant is glorious. God the Father brought God the Son back from the dead by way of the blood of this covenant. This eternal covenant was made by God before the foundation of the world. And its scope is to eternity future. The Father chose a bride for His Son. The Son came to rescue a bride, the bride given to Him by the Father. The Holy Spirit came to apply the work of the Son to the bride that He rescued. This is the eternal covenant. This is the new covenant seen in the book of Hebrews. 
It's what the new covenant is based on, this glorious, eternal covenant. I'm going to say that again, and I want to say it slowly, and I want you to just hear it. Friends, this is the eternal covenant. The father chose a bride for his son out of rebellious mankind. And he didn't have to save any one of us. Please hear this. This becomes a a doctrine of controversy, and it shouldn't be. You sinned against God. You and I were with Adam that day. We ate of the forbidden fruit. We rebelled, and we were objects of God's wrath. God didn't have to do anything for us. Nothing. We made our decision. We made our choice. And it was not to honor and obey God. It was not to follow Jesus. It was not to deny ourselves, but it was to indulge ourselves. This is what it means to be a sinner against a holy God. This is what we're born into. This sin, this perversion, this, this rebellion against God. And yet before the foundation of the world, God decided to give to his son a gift, a bride, to choose a bride for his son. And that's what he did. This is what we are here. And then Jesus came to rescue his bride. To give his bride life. To live and die for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is this unique love seen in this eternal covenant. Does God love the world generally? For God so loved the world. You know what that means? It means God so loved the world. But he doesn't love everyone the exact same way. I've said this to you guys, and I want you to hear this. It's so critical. The special love of God in Christ Jesus. I am to love my wife. And I'm not to love every woman here the same way. Just like God loves everyone, but not in the same way. And Jesus came to rescue you, his bride. To live for you, to die for you. You were on his mind. And we hear this blood of the eternal covenant. When his blood was spilled out, it was an actual atonement with every single believer's name on it. Eternal covenant. Every believer of old looking in anticipation for the coming Messiah, the promises of God to be fulfilled, and everyone looking back on Christ, everyone who would be a Christian, we are so because of the blood of this eternal covenant. His blood came out with names on it. Your name. And then the Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit applies the rescue. You say, well, I was still born and born into sin and I had to become a Christian. Yeah, you did. And the Holy Spirit came to ensure that the work of Christ was not null and void. The Holy Spirit, you want to talk about baptism or filling with the Holy Spirit? Friends, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came to you, opened your eyes, ripped your dead sinful heart out, and gave you a heart of flesh. And your heart started beating for the first time. You were spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit came to apply this blood of the eternal covenant. This is what the Holy Spirit of God does. And friends, this is Trinitarian unity. This is the eternal covenant, the covenant that that the new covenant is based on and every other covenant points to. This is the work of God in Christ Jesus. By the blood of the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant. Now, if God did all that, is anything impossible for him? If God did that for you, will he not graciously give you all things? Will he not equip you with good things to do what he's called you to do? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. And that's what we're told. Look at verse 21. 
equip you. May the God who did all this equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now, if God did that, may he now do this, equip you with everything good. And as surely as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will do this as well. God equips you with everything good. He does that to do his will. God is in the business of giving good gifts to his children, giving us his word that we would be equipped to do everything he would call us to do and everything else needed to accomplish his purposes through us. Everything you've ever done for the Lord, you've done so because God equipped you to do it. He gave you the gifts that were necessary to do what he's called you to do. He's empowered you to do it. He's directed you to do it. And he's seen that his work is finished when it started. What are we equipped to do? Why does he give the good gifts to his children? So that they can be self-indulgent, spiritually spoiled brats demanding more gifts from him? Demanding the new car, demanding the new plane, demanding the new diamonds, demanding the next thing, demanding the easiest life. Is that why we're given it? For our own good? For us to just enjoy the lavish gifts of life? Or, or are we given these gifts, these good gifts for a reason? And, and we're told the reason. To do His will. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. This is what God is in the business of doing. He equips us to do these things. God will not leave us without the tools to get the job done. If you belong to Him, He's gifted you. He's empowered you and he's directed you. And if you have a local church, he's helped you and gave you opportunities to encourage one another, to play your part of the body. He does what he says he's going to do. If evil men know how to good, 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 good gifts to their children, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to those who ask? Or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And God the Father takes care of us. And so he's given us good gifts to do his will. He equips and empowers every single one of his children that he calls. He equips and empowers us. And in fact, he does more than that. The text didn't tell us that he just equips and empowers, or he just doesn't tell us that he equips us, that we may do his will, but the Bible actually does something pretty wild. God is telling us that, that the good things that he's equipping us to do, he's actually working in us. This is mind-blowing. If you want to lose all pride, welcome to church today. Look at verse 20, 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. It's like, great, I want to do God's will. I want to, I want to. that's what I want to do. And that's what every believer should cry. And here's what he tells us. Working in us, or working in you, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Are you kidding? Working in me? God the Father working in us. You remember about a month and a half ago I talked about the moped? Anybody remember that? Started talking to Jordan. You know, I'm a few years older than Jordan, and Jordan was convinced that mopeds didn't have uh, bicycle, uh, what's it called? Pedals? Okay, let's just settle this. Okay, an argument between my wife and I right here. Who knows about mopeds with, uh, with uh, bicycle? I forgot them again. What's it called? Pedals. Yeah, pedals. Okay. When mopeds first came out, you know, there was these pedals that you, you so you would, you would push them. Okay, and here's what I said. I said, here's how this whole mechanism of salvation works, about how somebody becomes a Christian. God is the writer, not man. Okay? You go with me. There's, again, all these break down. God begins to pedal. That engine is the human heart. 
And he's pedaling, and that heart comes alive because of the work of God. And when I was in college, sitting in systematic theology class, I remember I told you guys this, that I said the actually the opposite of that. I said, oh, it's like man is the writer and gets it kickstarted, and then God comes and does. Because God, after all, helps those who help themselves, right? What a bunch of satanic nonsense. And that, this is it. And so God is the writer, but, but what the text is telling us is that it's not that God is the moped rider on the, on the moped, pedaling the tires, or pedaling the pedals, and then the engine comes on, and then he just takes his feet off. And the engine just takes over, and that new heart just empowers itself the rest of the time. What we're told here is that God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Does anybody... Um, fighting and dwelling sin, growing in godliness, doesn't it at times feel frustrating how stinking slow and drawn out it is? Where you can just feel at times that you're just the same guy? And it's like, okay, God is at work in me even when I feel like he's not at work in me. God is seeing Christ in me and empowering me. If I belong to him, this isn't and works in some of you. This is a promise for every single truly born again. I say truly born again. Not with a religious facade. Not somebody who has a generic confession of faith. Not somebody who walked like these Jewish confessors of Christ did for a little bit. And some of them turned back because they couldn't endure the persecution, the suffering, and everything that came along with being a confessing Jew or a Jew confessing Christ as Lord. And this goes for every Jew, Gentile as well. For those who are really born again of the Spirit of the living God living inside of them, this is a promise to you that God is working in you. You know the text in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work within you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. This text is saying the exact same thing. God is working in us that which is pleasing to him. What a comfort this is. What a joy this is. Ezekiel chapter 36. It's almost like the new covenant was true or something. It's almost like the promises of God were actually a reality for them and for us. Because we're told in Ezekiel 36, all those years ago from the old time prophet, here's what he said. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is about the glories of the new covenant regeneration, rebirth, this new heart that's promised. And the mysteries that are there in the old covenant of how any of this was experienced. But what's clear in the new covenant, as the covenant was established in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that the Holy Spirit invades a per person's life and you get circumcised, not just of the flesh, but you get circumcised of the heart. You get this new heart and God's Spirit comes within you. And the exact same thing Ezekiel says, the exact same thing that Paul says in Philippi, the writer of Hebrews says here, that God will work in you what is pleasing to him. If you belong to him, you can sin for a while, sin for a season. You can kick and run and cry and scream. You can throw temper tantrums. 
You can backslide, but eventually he'll get you. He will get you. And you'll stop doing that. Or you'll be an apostate. And you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and it will not go well for you. But if you really know him, if you have the spirit of God, then he'll get you. This is the great dividing line between true and false faith, between living faith and dead faith, between the kind of faith that can't save and the true faith that can save. Christians endure, false converts don't. Christians continue and God gets them and they may walk in a season of rebellion for years. And all of a sudden, brokenness comes. And God gets and finishes what he starts. It's a promise. This is for you. It's for every Christian. My goodness. So good. He's working in us. God's doing that through Christ right now for every brother and sister in this room. God is working in you that which pleases him. You are his. He is working in you. And it's non-optional. It's not optional. This is what he is doing. And there is no way to be pleasing in the sight of God but through Jesus Christ. You see this connection here. Pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. You cannot please God apart from Jesus Christ. This goes back to the same question about peace with God. How does God become the God of peace to people? How is he a God of peace to be in peace with God through Jesus Christ? How do you please God? No one in the flesh can please God. It's impossible. You can't come to God in your own strength. According to the flesh. And as we're walking this Christian life out, we continue to deny the flesh. We continue to turn from self-indulgence and start denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. And God, in fact, is working in us through the Lord Jesus. The other options are to genuinely follow false gods, even fake Jesuses, on the road to hell. It's the only other option. You're either being worked on by God... Or you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And the glory of this benedictory prayer is that we are blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is in fact working. And those early confessing Jews, those who were truly born again, God would see them through all the persecution, all the slander, all the hatred, all the taking away of their even private property. God would sustain them guiltless to the end. And all glory goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, here's what it says. To whom be glory forever and ever. What a wonderful way to finish up the book of Hebrews. Jesus came to glorify the Father. For this purpose, I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus came to glorify the Father. From John, the book of John. The Spirit's work is to glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit comes and takes, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come. He will take what is mine and deliver it to you for he will glorify me. Where where Christ is not glorified, the Spirit is not at work. Where the Spirit is central and one of the ways, a a good indicator of, is, is this of God or not? If it's all the Holy Spirit being talked about and the cross of Christ is not even mentioned or loved, that is not the work of the Spirit. The work of Spirit turns attention to the Son and people adore the Lord Jesus Christ. They repent of their sins. They run to him and see the glory of his name. The father gets glorified then when the son is glorified. This is Trinitarian glory through the worship of Christ. When Christ is honored, the father is is honored. The Holy Spirit is coming to glorify the son and point people to glorify the son. Glory be to Christ 
forever. Join with me in song. Should nothing of our efforts fade, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain his builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? Amidst that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Here's how we started the book of Hebrews. The glorious Christ's. Jesus is supreme. He is greater than the angels. He is superior to Moses. He's superior to Melchizedek. Jesus is our creator. Jesus sustains us. Jesus is the God-man who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus is the Lamb of God who suffered in the place of His people. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the inheritor of the earth. Jesus is the ascended King at the right hand of the Father. Everything is subject to Him. Jesus is the great High Priest. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He fulfills and establishes this great eternal covenant. Jesus is our substitute righteousness. Jesus is our advocate to the Father. Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the greater priest. Jesus is the greater king. Jesus is the author of our faith. Jesus is the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the perfecter of all those who are being sanctified. And we barely, barely, barely scratched the surface over the last eight months. All glory be to Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever and ever. The Apostle, I think Paul, you think whoever, makes one last appeal after this benedictory prayer. And he appeals to them that they would receive this word of exhortation that I've written. Receive it. Receive it for what it is. It's the word of God. And that's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. If Timothy goes to get him, then they will go to see him soon. He appeals that they would bear with the word of exhortation. At times, this book was difficult. There were some hard words in this book. You get into Hebrews chapter 6 or 10, get into the warnings, and you think, man, these are, this is hard. This is difficult to hear. How does this fit in light of the rest of the book? This warning seems real, and it is real. This is tough. And he appeals to them, I appeal to you, bear with my word, and he says, of exhortation. This is not just intended to be hard, this is to exhort you. I want you to be encouraged by this. Don't just hear the warnings and and not run or, or run in fear. I want you to be encouraged and exhorted by this. These are words of exhortation. Bear with them. And he finishes with the grace of God. Greet all your leaders And all the saints, 
And those who come from Italy send you greetings. This is the final thing that we see often in these epistles, these final things tagged on the end. And I love this. It's a letter of authentication, really, from the, from the apostles. Is the final word being a word of grace. And we often look at these and we think, well, it starts with grace to you and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to all the brothers who are with me, something like that in a letter, and typically will end with something about the grace of God. And do we think that's an accident? Are we to suppose that this was just a common way to say hi and bye in the letters in ancient Mediterranean area? Or is this a profound theological truth right up here at the end of the book? Grace be with all of you. And friends, I think it is to recenter us to the whole point of the book, God's grace. God's grace is for you. Come back to the grace of God. Remember God's grace. Don't forget it. Grace gets the final word. Grace be with you. There's lots of grace in the book of Hebrews, isn't there? This is where you guys can be participatory. Yeah, there's a lot of grace in there. There's lots of warnings in the book of Hebrews, isn't there? Sure is. You bet. A lot of warnings. But we end the book with the familiar word of God's grace. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. And friends, grace be with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book. It's been a joy to walk through this letter. Help us to be changed by it. Even the last five verses of the book we look at today. I pray these things would stick with us. They would stay with us. We'd be changed by it. If there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, help them feel the weight of your law and may it drive them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. For those who are in right relationship, God, help us to love your law. Help us to obey, honor you. And in the process of obeying and honoring you and wanting to do what you've called us to do, help us acknowledge that you've given us everything that we need. And God, when we see that growth, help us to look at it and think, wow, uh, not I've come a long way or look what I'm doing. Aren't I great? Look what I'm doing for the kingdom. But help us to pause and recognize, remember verses like this, that God is working in me that which is pleasing in his sight. And when that change comes, when that repentance is there, we look at it and we say, God, thank you for it. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for taking me by the hand. Thank you for getting in my face and convicting me of my sin. And God, we love you. We just want to honor you. Thank you that grace is with us and for us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.